all the training techniques that I learned in America and then took with me back to Europe were very unknown and uncommon in Europe, but they worked a treat. And funny enough, a lot of those uh, particular aspects of Western riding are really highly used in dressage now, except yeah. we never use the word, this comes from Western riding. From performanceriders.com, this is The Collectives, where we ever so gently put aside the training and the experts just for a little while and focus on some real talk with riders from the equestrian community. I'm Nat Foxen, and today we're talking to two riders, Bill and Linda, who have made the switch from other disciplines into dressage. I wonder how many dressage riders have come across to the good side from the dark side, um, and then, or maybe it's the opposite, come from the good side into the dark side. So maybe there's lots of, I'm sure there's lots of riders who have come from eventing and showing and maybe even a Western horse sport. So today I'm really interested to hear stories from riders who have switched to dressage from another discipline or another horse sport and what that experience has been like. So today I welcome our riders, Bill and Linda. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Can we start with you, please, Bill? We live in Armidale. Um, uh, we've got a, a property about 10 kilometres out of town, lucky enough to have an indoor arena now. Um, um, and predominantly, uh, my wife is the, is the true horseman and I, uh, or horse person, and I, <laughs> I, um, I sort of tag along. Um, you know, and, and it's and it's been a great journey, of course. Um, can we start, Bill, by telling us sort of which sport, which horse sport you were involved in prior to dressage? I'd love to know um, about that story. Over to you, Bill. Yeah, we um, probably spent twenty years show jumping and eventing um, from the nineties onwards, um, and that, that was back in the day. Um, when uh, in the eventing, the three-day events, we still had the roads and tracks. Uh, we had the steeplechase, uh, and it was it was really quite a uh, quite a wild game um, uh, <laughs> back, back in those days. Uh, and we we um, thoroughbreds off the track. We'd get thoroughbreds off the track and uh, yeah. um, and 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 uh, work them up to. Um, to uh, really novice novice levels was was what we did, but in those days novice was a pretty serious um, a serious event, and and of course we had the show jumping to go with it, and um, had some uh, had some terrific show jumping horses, and really really competed mostly B and C grade show jumpers. Didn't um, had had one horse that was an A grade horse, but but really I was an A grade rider, so that got a bit. A bit hairy, yeah. um, <laughs> but it was um, look a tremendous amount of fun, but yeah. a completely different era. Um, it was it was pretty well seated the pants riding. Um, you uh, yeah, you just had that that drive to get get through the through the event. Um, yeah, and the the learning was was I'd have to say it was secondary. It yeah. was more your Dutch courage, so to speak, um, <laughs> um, that got you that got you through. Yeah. Um, although we did, um, Tony used to go to lessons with a, a fellow called Edgar Litchfart, um, who was a German parade, and he was an incredible horseman. Mm. And uh, the knowledge that he had 
gave us a glimpse of what was out there. And and at that stage, Tonia was, um, I mean, she could get it. She, she, you know, was able to understand and she knew the feel and, and could take that information forward where I, I would be looking at it and going, geez, you know, I, I just, I'm not really sure what they're doing. You yeah. Know, it, it on that level at the at the higher dressage levels. I and even years ago, I can remember Tonya going round in circles, and I just could not possibly understand what she could possibly be doing, going <laughs> round and round in circles. Like what? You know, one circle you've done the circle. What what's next? You know, like why is that she was still going around? around. <laughs> it's going around and around. That's but, hilarious. And 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 um, and even um, you know Heath Ryan and and. Um, uh, Ronnie Easy was another one. Uh, you know, they started bringing it uh, to us in a theory. But yeah. in those days, like, there really wasn't a lot. Colleen Brooks was another one. She was pretty good. Yeah. Um, but, but there's something about someone can tell you a lot about horse theory, but you've still got to have this ability to feel it, experience, and then you say you've got it. And right. until you've done that, you haven't got it. So, Bill, I've got to say, the days of venting actually sound like a total blast. They sound really oh, fun. What and look, was was it, uh, it was it the ed- influence and inspiration from from Tonya's coach Edgar that gave you that thought that maybe you want to switch over to dressage, or what was the catalyst that made you want to switch? I had a uh, a terrific show jumping horse that I had a um, that a, a pretty nasty accident on. And, and damaged my shoulder, um, smashed my shoulder, which put me out. And then, and then I had a series of operations which put me out for a couple of years. And then it, it, so I sort of didn't come back into it in any substantial way. Uh, got busy with work. So that led to six or seven years off a horse. Mm. Um, and... Uh, and uh, Tony was still riding, and when I, when I then had time to get back into it, I started driving the truck, um, yeah. and the novelty wore off there pretty quick. Just driving <laughs> the truck and carrying the test sheets, and um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, doing that, doing the dressage stuff. Um, and look, um, uh, I, uh, you know, being being probably a little bit of a smart ass, I I would say to Tony, look, you know, come on. You know, you've got to get him moving along a bit. You know, if you're going to have any chance in this competition, and you, you know, you might like to get him a bit rounder. And um, <laughs> you know, the, you know, the presentation's good, but you've got to fire him up a little bit. And, um, <laughs> and uh, Tonya, Tonya, I remember one day she said, "Radio, smart ass." About time you got back on. Yeah. And and and, and that's how it, that's how I got back on. We only had an older. Um, a chestnut mare that was out of my good show jumping mare. And um, oh, she was a spooky bugger of a thing. Um, but that was all there was. So that's that's, uh, that's the horse that I started riding again. And that's when we went down to uh, Willinga Park, decent novice, novice test. Uh, and that was the horse 2018. Mm. And that was well. And the other thing was, is, is we didn't have time. Like we're in our sixties, we didn't have time to go chasing, eventing, show jumping, and go the other way with dresser. Right. We only got one. Tanya doesn't have a truck license. Um, yeah. It just wasn't feasible. And it's not. It's not what we're about 
in our 60s. We're not chasing gold medals. We're just doing it to enjoy what we do. So, yeah. um, and, and look, the fact of the matter is, is um, dressage is an incredibly difficult sport. It's, it's much more difficult than show jumping or eventing. Right. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. I, 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 and I, all like my show jumping mates, they'll tell you, like, you know, you, it, it is difficult. Like, you know, if you yeah. ever go to a combined training day, get the show jumpers out there, they're hopeless. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, it, it really is, you know, yeah. It's, it's, and is that what and, you like about it, do you think? There's, do you think you look, get a kick out of that challenge? Absolutely. And the understanding, it's the understanding the why. Why does it work? Why do you do that? What are you trying to do? Yeah. And it, it's, dressage is like, it's like a science. You know, it's, you, and you peel back the layers and it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Mm. And then, so you get all that and you, and you think, well, I can go and put this into practice and you load your horses on and you, You'll drive three or four or five hours. You'll drive across the country for a, for a dressage test and the horses will, you'll get there. The horses are freaking out. They're not drinking. They yeah. don't want to be there. They're amazed. It all goes pear-shaped and you yeah. drive five or six hours home and go, oh, well, wasn't that good fun? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, no, but we love it. We love it. And, look, the, 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 whole, um, the whole fellowship of, um, of, of the, the communities, um, yeah. And especially in the regions, like it's all good. It's all good fun. It's always good right. fun. Good social, uh, good pastime. Mm. That's great to hear. So, how has the previous experience eventing either helped or hindered your life as a dressage rider? Like, have you brought sort of elements of your eventing background into dressage, and you think that that's helped you in some way or hindered you in some way? Well, um, there's certainly an advantage in being able to get a horse going forward we never i've never had a problem with that like you know, we can we can go um often in our show jumping and, and eventing you know we we're pretty good with the leg and a seat um you know we've got to go forward um but but and that was a good part of of bringing that into the dressage but yeah. uh then you've got um you've got to be able to relax the age as well which has taken me a while to understand that um and do you think maybe confidence in the horses being that forward and having that much energy underneath you because you're you're used to that? Yeah, I think, and then that probably is a difference. And perhaps in a general way, it's a difference between perhaps male and female riders, as the as the male riders might be a little bit more forward and comfortable with that. In the in the world of the show jumping and and dressing, I've got a mate who who always who always says he and he and he gets to retrain a lot of um, the dressage horses, and he and he always says he, he can tell um, often tell a lady's dressage horse because it's happier at trot than canter. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's well, an interesting because, observation. <laughs> well, the, I think his observation is that that the but the blokes will just get going. We just get going, you know, like, and, you know, let's face it, seating trot, you know, it's not a lot of fun, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, Bloody. it's not a, not a lot Catering's of fun. Catering's a whole lot easier. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's a whole, catering's just so much easier, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'd be it. happy if the whole test is candor. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. 
And what about Bill? How have you found the sports different maybe culturally? Like is there anything that you think, oh, gee, I wish the dressage community had a bit of this or that or vice versa? Oh, look, I think I think horse people are pretty much the same. I don't think there's a, there's a great deal of difference. You know, the, the, the level of skill in dressage, show jumping, eventing is, um, and the horsemanship is, is pretty much the same. It's Brett Parbury here, and I just wanted to pop in and say that if you're enjoying this conversation, you might like to head over to performanceriders.com slash podcast, where we list free training resources just for our podcast audiences. Find out what's available now at performanceriders.com slash podcast. And now, back to the episode. Uh, Linda, we'd love to get to know you, please. I have a small boutique horse breeding farm uh, between Brisbane and the Gold Coast. And I give mostly lessons in the afternoon and train horses in the morning. So oh. that's, that's what I do. And the lessons are mostly flat work, dressage, a bit of jumping and a bit of cross country and uh, keep variety and, and interest in the people in their horses in general. So Lovely. You're living the dream, Linda. Sounds great. I'm living the dream, but I have to work for it as well, though. Right. So <laughs> of course. <laughs> so I grew up on a farm in Holland where we had crops, but we also did spelling for racehorses in rehab and falling down. And so I grew up amongst it. And then I went to Pony Club and my dad thought it was a good idea to uh, buy a two and a half year old pony for me because according to his theories, um, you were only good enough to go to Pony Club if you could break in your own horse. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's incredible. But the result was when I came to Pony Club with this two and a half year old horse and I was only eight, I had already ridden for years on a Shetland pony, but at that time I was only eight. And word spread around that I had started pony during the summer recess. We um, had a stable full of ponies for me to start on the saddle. Oh, my so goodness. At a very young age, I was starting uh, Welsh ponies, mostly 12, 13-hand Welsh ponies. And we just popped them out. So I was just busy all day uh, jumping on Welsh ponies wow. uh, between the age of 8 and 10. So that was my start. And I think based on the interest of my father, who was a very good all-round all horseman, he said you can learn something from every breed of horse and every sport of horse. Uh, but the other thing that they told me was to, you can do whatever you like in life, but you must get an education and a degree and do not work in the horse industry, get a real <laughs> job. <laughs> but that was always the message I got, get a real job. But so, your parents did actually work in the horse industry. And so that they, they why they, from, that's that, why they said not to. Yes, yeah, yeah. They, they knew all the pitfalls. Really? And all the hard work and, you know, effectively the very little money for all your hard work. So that they meant well and they really, you know, really wanted me to get a real job and just have a horse on the side. So I went to America for a couple of months uh, after I had my final exams at university just to work in the horse industry to get it out of my system and then to start my normal life. <laughs> I think I see where this is going. <laughs> so I started working at an Arabian horse farm in America in Kentucky and 
when we went to the horror shows there, they would have literally over 2,000 entries. And they weren't just doing dressage with the arrangements. They were doing all sorts of classes, all sorts of the American show classes, driving, Western classes, so everything. And I thought like, well, while I'm in America, why not do something American? Because I had the typical, you know, equestrian background from Europe. Mm. So I did a lot of show riding in America and Western riding. And it is actually in the Western riding that a little bit in the show riding, but and many, many aspects in the Western riding that I have been able to use in my advantage in dressage. And a lot of the things that Brett is talking about today is what I actually already learned in Western riding. Oh, However, yeah. I'm talking about the late 80s when I was in America. And so at that time, the, the world wasn't global as it is now. So all the training techniques that I learned in America and then took with me back to Europe were very unknown and uncommon in Europe, but they worked a treat. And funny enough, a lot of those uh, particular aspects of Western riding are really highly used in dressage now, except yeah. we never use the word, this comes from Western riding. Yeah. But in the late 80s, early 90s, that was definitely several techniques that were not known in Europe and not used like or not in that context. And I think the combination of the world getting global plus um, the, the, the dressage horse, the breeding has changed. The type of people that are competing in the last 20 years in dressage has changed. So all these things have changed and it is a lot more intertwined and interacted now with, in essence, other sports as well. And you might have heard that there's actually a Western riding coach in Holland that is instructing uh, high profile dressage people as well. Right. And that is, I didn't uh, know that. Yes. And she has instructed uh, uh, numerous top and sub top riders and amongst them uh, riders that represented the Dutch team. Oh, that's really interesting. And I think it's great. I suppose that that speaks a little bit also to how um, the dressage community has become more open to receiving information and ideas from other sports, you know. Yeah. yeah. Like Bill was saying, horse, you know, good horse people, good horse people, just all horse people, and we can learn from one another. Um, Linda, I want to circle back in a minute and hear about the little bit more about the training techniques that hmm. you sort of think um, translate across the different disciplines. But at what point did you decide that dressage was for you um, as a sport rather than the showing or the Western or hmm. show jumping or anything like that? If you look at Western riding and you look, for instance, uh, especially in America where, where it's, you know, where, where the foundations of Western riding, uh, you can achieve the ultimate goal on a three-year-old horse because there's only a few things that the horse has to do and has to do well. And a little unfortunate, in my opinion, you get those maturity classes that start for two-and-a-half-year-old horses. And once they win a few championships, then they so-called get retired because then they can be listed as being, you know, unbeaten and they've won everything and then they retire to stuff. But admittedly, um, after your particular, let's say, reigning pattern or Western pleasure or trail, um, in essence, if you're a decent rider, you can achieve that within 
two years of training. Okay. Whereas a really good dressage horse, a top rider will still take seven years to really get from, you know, like basically preliminary to Grand Prix. Mm. And then once you got to Grand Prix, then it keeps being refined and, and it keeps being improved to really become, you know, to a, a world class with that horse. So there is so much more to it and it keeps you going and ticking over. So in order to reach your ultimate goal, that is just so this more and more and more and more. It's not like, okay, I've done my ABC. I'm done now. Right. Now I just repeat things. Yeah, so yeah. that was for me uh, the thing that I like about dressage. The other thing that I also like about dressage is, of course, the movement of the horse. For me, the bigger the better and uh, <laughs> because what it is if you if you sit on a really well moving dressage horse you as a rider have to be fit and strong and toned and supple and especially being uh, vertically challenged with my five foot nil and uh, <laughs> uh, and getting on 17 hand horses um, I love the challenge of the physical control that I need on that really flamboyant moving dressage horse whereas the physical ability that i need in my body on the 15 hand quarter horse is compared to the dressage horse right. very you know i don't need to do much to achieve it yeah so that is for me the the challenge the the, the mental and the physical challenge that i have to it, it it's ongoing it doesn't stop Mm. So that's such a thing that's really come out strong from both of you, Bill and Linda, is this, this kick that you get out of that challenge in dressage, you know, the longevity of it and the ongoing, like Bill said, you walk into one room and you, you're okay. You master everything that's in that room. And then through the other door is a whole new world again. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's a great analogy. Um, Linda, please tell us more about I mean, really, this is about, I guess, how your experience in different disciplines has benefited your dressage riding through some of these quite practical training techniques. Can you talk a little bit about more about that? What are those dressage training techniques that you think, oh, gosh, this is something that I that I sort of learned or or uh, explored in the Western world? So what I felt, what my main thing was in America, I remember first coming, uh, when going to a, a horse show in America, and like I said, there's 2,000 two plus entries there. And the horses are, you know, in, in the typical stables, as we have here as well, the shows. And the riders would come out of the stables, walk the horse to the arena, and then uh, pick up the reins, irrelevant what, what discipline they did. And the first thing they did was go into canter. Mm-hmm. And I typically European, um, of course, I said like, oh, uh, but don't you go to walk first and then you spend X amount in trots and then you leave canter till the last. And there was this typical cowboy that said to me like, okay, so when you turn a horse out from the stable into the paddock, is that horse going to do a few laps of trot first before (laughs) he goes to a gentle canter? (laughs) Love it. And I thought, oh, that's right. And they said, well, you know, the canter is the, the, the pace that opens up the most. And they will graze one minute and go for a full gallop the next if they live in their own life in, in the paddock. Yeah. And I have used that 
a lot in my training yeah. and also in my coaching because a bit coming back to what Bill said, uh, you know, in general, and this is, I, I agree, where, where most women are, many women are more cautious unless they have an eventing background, then they're not. Yeah. Uh, but many women that just stick to dressage are more cautious. And often the sooner you get the canter done in the lesson, the more they open up and the more mm -hmm. they actually have a better trot after that. So you get that canter out of the way first. And then wow. um, and so and you're talking about open up more. Yeah. And you're talking about mentally the rider. Yes. yes. That's yes. really interesting. Wow. It, other thing in Western riding, and like I said, this goes back to the late 90s where we're not that global, so it might not be that new nowadays, but it definitely was then. The biggest difference was, of course, neck reining versus bit reining. Okay, yes, yes, because this is, uh, for anyone who's been through Brett's programs, will recognize this as shoulder control, right? Yes, yes. And more, Linda. And of course, the neck reining, of course, uh, me be, being young uh, at the time, of course, I thought it was purely the reins laying against the neck. So right rein against the neck means turn left. Uh, but of course, it's also automatically what it does with neck reining, you bring your whole body that fraction to that side. So you automatically have that more pressure of your, the inside of your upper leg, knee and calf on the horse so it's not just the neck that that feels the way there yeah. is automatically a little bit that clench of that leg that brings the horse over and as a result you start riding your horse more from your core and then later on when I was involved with polo of course it was your polo horse had to be able to to turn on the spot instead of turning the headlights you had to turn the middle of the body Mm -hmm. And so your horse becomes a bit of a zero turn if we talk about uh, lawn or ride on mowers or uh, bobcats, <laughs> that you have a zero turn effect in yeah. the horse. Yeah. And, and of course, this relates much more to, again, the shoulder control, canter pirouettes, anything that has to sort of happen instantly or on the spot and not really going in a wide arc circle. So that was another thing. And then the, uh, the most obvious thing for me was I remember as a kid, um, it wasn't really new to me when I was a kid because I rode for the first five years bareback because I had to earn my own saddle. So, <laughs> as, a uh, so as a result, my body was so tuned in to move yeah. exactly according to the horse's back muscles. I, I grew, my body grew in that way. But when I went to pony club and the kids were taught sitting trot, we were taught, you know, sit really loose in your body and, and just keep trotting and trotting until you're so tired, you won't bounce anymore. Right. <laughs> and that was a very common instruction for people learning the sitting trot. Oh, wow. But of course, in your, Try really that one, Bill. <laughs> in your really slow Western riding, because Western riding, you got your, your job, which is basically a walk that hasn't quite broken into a trot yet. Okay. It's this yeah. really, really, really slow jog. They call it a jog. But what you do and what you see in the Western riders, they sit with those really very equal left, right, left, right drop of the seat bone. Yeah. Yes. So it's a clearly left, right drop of the seat bone, uh, which I already did as a kid when I had all my bareback lessons. Yes. 
but it got a little bit uh, misled when uh, we were told, like, you just got to sit really loose until you're so tired and keep trotting until you won't find gravity anymore. Um, so when I went back to Europe and I started helping riders, like, no, don't just try to sit loose with your body, stay toned to your body, but feel the left right drop of your seat bone as you yeah. do it walk now yeah. carry that on to the trot and so the 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 neck rating which relates to shoulder control the left right seat bone in the walk which of course eventually becomes a piaf passage the various trots and all that yes. um, they were a few of the things oh there's way more in western riding but those are just a few points yeah. i could carry on well, that, that's just so fascinating to me especially given your background you know growing up in in the epicenter really of dressage and horse sports and yet that experience in another discipline in another country actually has influenced really positively influenced and inspired you know what you're doing in dressage that that's really yeah. fascinating so it's obviously been very beneficial to you and do mm. you find that with writers that you teach or riders that are friends or whatnot that having a varied experience on the horse is beneficial to their dressage oh absolutely absolutely because the thing is with riders uh, as we all know uh, sometimes you've got to give five different explanations ways of explaining it and it, it all means the same but yeah. you've got to find very different ways of doing it. And I think my, my box of tricks is just much fuller because of all the various disciplines. And the other thing that really helps, when I get riders here with your typical ex-race horse, uh, me having done racing myself and having been involved with that, I can explain to the rider, this was what your horse was taught. That was how it was done. Have you actually ever seen the training on a racetrack? Because mm. what I always am dumbfounded about is that people do buy an ex-race horse, but they don't start training that horse from a race training program. Um, whenever we right. had ex-race horses, the first when they came first off the track, we would continue their conditioning training. We would be up in the stirrups and then add a little bit of flat work oh. rather than, okay, throw them out in the paddock for half a year yeah. and then only in the arena and then have a 45-minute ride because the ex-race horse doesn't know any more than you know being ridden for 15 minutes only and just around the track so um i can help people with standard breaths or race horses or people that come with a quarter horses here or mm -hmm. a polo an ex-polo cross pony i think i can help them start you know uh, switching instead of doing complete dressage actually uh do part of yeah. whatever the horse's previous career was. And I think it also gives the rider more of an insight and more of a sympathy and empathy for the horse where it's coming from when it doesn't quite understand mm. what you want from them. That's so smart, Linda. And it's it's that's about meeting the horse where the horse is. Yes, yes. Right, yeah. That is so smart. I love that. Um, Bill, let's bring you up as well because it's, the 45 minutes has just absolutely gone so fast. So I have to start wrapping up in a minute. So I'll unmute you, Bill. Um, so just to have both of you in the conversation together, with all of your varied 
horse experience. Is there anything that that you would like to see um, changed in the sport of dressage? And Bill, you may have touched on this a little bit earlier, but you started to cut out, so we couldn't quite hear. But is there anything that you think oh, I, I wish this, this sort of element that I've experienced before in this other sport was was evident in dressage? Or what are your feelings well, about that? Well, yes, I I um, I believe that there should be some sort of system of progression and and um, um, levels that you go through that that you are assessed. Mm-hmm. And you are competent at a certain level with with a particular horse. Mm-hmm. So, and I think in America they have um, they have their uh, medals. They have, I think they have a, a bronze, silver, gold medal system that you. I think, but I think it's to do with um, the percentages as well. But I think if we were more structured, mm-hmm. not to take the fun away, but more structured, so that we achieved more more efficiently and earlier rather than waiting 20 years and finally the light bulb comes on and you go, I've got to understand this. Yes. Mm. I mean, Franz Moringa years ago, he's got a book called Horses, uh, Let Horses Be Horses, I think, and and he talks about, you know, he saw a bloke in the park and he was having all sorts of trouble with his horse and he said, look, if you want to come and um, down to this in Centennial Park, come down to the arena and I'll, I'll give you a bit of a tip on this and the blank said no look I'm far too busy I've got to, you know I've got to get this horse worked you know and you know 20 years later that bloke's probably still trying to get that right. horse because he <laughs> you know yeah but but yeah. there's no structure there's no like like pony club is not like pony clubs for pony club but it's not for the sport of yeah. dressage mm-hmm. um I really think we we could have a better system, and I'm not sure what they have in Germany, but I know if you want to um, be professional in Germany, you need to be, um, or in Europe, I should say. But uh, just experience in Germany and and um, Edgar Litzfart, their rate system, and um, and and they are they have a completely different culture. Just like Italy, right? Come on, you know. Yeah, yeah I know yeah. You're, you're only. You're only jumping D grade at the moment, but look, have a crack at that C grade or B grade. See how you go. That, yeah. That's what happens, isn't it? Instead of yeah. someone saying no, like "woo," yeah, yes, exactly. Let's just concentrate on what we're doing. Yeah. That's so true. Structures, structures the big thing for me. Yeah. So I know some countries do have um, something around the idea of a performance license. I'm not sure exactly what it's called, mm. but something around that idea. Linda, what about you? What would you like to see um, changed or improved in dressage based on your experience in all the different sports? The one thing that dumbfounded me when I came to this country, which was in the mid-90s, and unfortunately hasn't changed yet compared to Europe, when you look at your dressage test sheet and down the bottom, you got your collective marks. There is the last mark is the mark for the rider and the judge will just literally give an average score. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's normally completely based like, okay, what was the average of the rest of the test? Okay, I'll give them a six. In Europe, the collective marks down the bottom there are numerous parts that are all relating to the rider's 
riding style, uh, riding position, stability in the saddle, uh, the, mm. the hand carriage, the leg position, all these different mm. things, much more, especially in the levels from uh, comparable to prelim to uh, elementary. Mm-hmm. They got all these various points that you get marked on as a rider in your riding style. Also as judges uh, in Europe, when you would get your, what they call your protocol test back, is a lot of the comments which, uh, would state, let's say if it was the three loop serpentine, where the rider's riding style or ride, way of riding was not good enough. Uh-huh. And so when I came here, it was all about going through your pattern And I know for a fact that a few judges who are now international judges, I was penciling for them. And I said, listen, I said, you've given every rider a rider mark of six. Yet we've seen 20 riders and there were three really nice riders there. And there were also a few that were actually really not good at all to watch. And I don't think it's fair that they all get the same mark because how is that going to encourage riders to become better and so that is really what i'd like to see to, that the judges will give much more of an input and and encourage and reward a nice riding style so if the horse jumps away and spooks and you lose marks because of that that doesn't mean you were a bad rider sure yeah if you actually recovered from that you should almost get an accolade for that and being a really good ride for that. Yeah. Rather than, oh, because you got a few fours in your test because your horse was green, therefore your generic riding score goes down as well. And that is what I would like to see uh, change in the on the test sheets uh, yeah. in Australian dressage. I think that what a fantastic idea, actually excellent ideas from both of you. And it's, I feel quite inspired. <laughs> How can we put these, get these changes going? Um, and I think the theme there is that we need to focus on the rider, the rider progression um, and having a structured, a, some structure and encouragement and um, reward for riders to improve themselves. Um, yeah. And I think that's just such a fan, fantastic, um, you know, example of what can happen when you come to the sport with this sort of rich background from other experience in horse sports. So thank you both so much. It's gone so quickly. I so enjoyed hearing your stories and I've learned a lot as well from listening to both of you. So thank you very much. Thank you, Natalie. That was terrific. And Linda, thank you. Thank you, Bill. Nice meeting you. Yeah.